Stephen, thanks for joining us. This is uh, it, it, great to have you here. And thanks for all the – as long as I've got you here, thanks for Mugtoberfest. That was so great. No, no, thank you. I mean, it was uh, uh, it was great to have everybody there. Um, it's, you know, really appreciate you coming out to speak. And, um, man, just it's just good to see people in person. Um, it's hard to do safely, but, uh, yeah, there's, there's parts that you just can't, you can't duplicate. You guys did a great job. Um, and actually, do you, do you want to just kick it off a little bit on how you, uh, on the kind of the way you operated the conference from a safety perspective? Because I'm not seeing other conferences do that, and I thought you all did a terrific job. So, you know, we tried to to do a couple things. So we switched our venue. So our old venue was great. Uh, it was the public library in town. Uh, Portland, Maine, that is. And it's a fantastic facility, but it's underground. There's no circulation, um, nothing. So we moved venues. We had a much bigger, wider space, um, which had a big garage door at one end, uh, doors at the other, so we can get some airflow. Um, we invested in air filtration. So we just brought in a couple portable filters, you know, whatever the wire cutter recommendation was. Um, and then I believe it was through Corey Gilmore. I think that's where we got the name. Anyway, we found a, um, a contractor called a Tend Safe, and they basically mailed tests to everybody. Um, they took proof of vaccination, and it was just a, you know, they, they took the, the heavy lifting off our side because we knew all the way, you know, sort of all along we wanted to do, um, you know, have a vaccination requirement and test and all that, but trying to, do all that on top of the uh, event logistics would have just been a nightmare. So, um, you know, there were a couple of hiccups here and there, um, but by and large, uh, it seems to, as far as I know, we haven't sort of been a super spreader event. Um, we had a couple people uh, not attend because they, the pre-event testing um, flagged they were positive. We had one uh, person at the event test positive and, um, I've been sort of waiting with bated breath, but I haven't heard anybody else who, who caught it. So, um, it, well, it was, yeah, much appreciated as an attendee. Um, and, uh, it was, I think you took a very conscientious approach and it allowed us to get, cause you said it was great to be back in person again. So it was, yeah. you know, trying to find a way to do that safely. And Adam, you've never been to Monktoberfest, I don't think. Have you? Never, never on the bucket list. <laughs> definitely, really, really want to go. Wait, wait. That's that so invite. angry. Exactly. Uh, so no, nobody, nobody to blame but me. But I'm, I would love to go someday. What we need is I, 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 I want to do Monktober West. I, I, I oh, confess. <laughs> Should we do it in Portland as well? Yeah. Ooh, oh my God. I, oh. <laughs> I think, it's, I think this is this is like a libel or a slander suit. I think. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but I because it, it but it, it's I mean it's lovely to be in uh, in I've learned not to wade into the, the Portland dispute. Um, it's lovely to be in Portland, Maine, um, and it was it was a great conference. And uh, it, I know it's it's rightfully on a bunch of bucket lists, and I feel privileged to have been there. So thanks again, Stephen, for for having us. It was terrific. Um, and then I, I feel like um, before we get to open source, I, are, are we get, do we get to talk a little bit of baseball? Um, yeah, I hope so. I mean, come on. Well, I mean, I, that depends. Like, are we, we're not going to talk about 
our season, right? We're going to talk about other seasons. Of course, no, no, we we are only going to crap on other teams because all of our teams have been are are a disappointment. Yeah, baseball season has been over for three months. (laughs) Three months? How about six, pal? uh, So, the did you watch? Because Adam, I know you. Child duty prevented you from watching any of the games this weekend. Live, yes. I got I got a bunch of replays, but yeah. And and Stephen, do you watch baseball with your daughter? Is she at the level? Is she at the age where she can appreciate it yet? Uh, I get her to watch like probably ten minutes of a Red Sox game, maybe. <laughs> right there you there, go. There about. Um, no, I didn't. I didn't actually watch for the most part. Um, I had the I had the radio feeds up, um, and uh, you know, blast MLB for not subjecting it to the national feed. So then I don't have to listen to Smoltz and everything else. It's like, okay, great. Oh, that's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Pick a feed. It's lovely. So unlike the two of you who really grew up as baseball fans, both Red Sox fans, um, I did not really grow up a baseball fan at all. I really, baseball is a pure post kid thing for me. I only got into baseball when my kids got into baseball. So um, for me, like being a baseball fan is, is, is pure. And so I'm just really trying to give you both hope that there is, uh, we, we, that you will not have to in the future. You will not have to choose between family time and baseball time. These things will become one in the same. Um, that, so it was that'd be great if I can pull that <laughs> off. That'd be wonderful. Yeah, exactly. And I know, like, plenty of people are not baseball fans, but if you the, the watching postseason baseball, it, it, the thing about baseball, if you are not a baseball fan, is that baseball. I if you don't understand necessarily what's going on, like cricket, it can feel boring. But the thing about baseball is it can really hold you on the edge of your seat for a long period of time. And definitely, uh, I, I mean, we're obviously all rooting against the Astros, please. I mean, I, I mean, this is, it goes without saying. I, mean, like a, I guess we are, but in other words, like... Jesus know, Christ, do you have the same problem as... I, Adam and I have a boss who has a little too much ambiguity around... Uh, <laughs> you're, you're, talking about, you're talking about a fandom that... I don't remember what years this was, but they had a, an Easter egg hunt at the old, uh, was it Veteran Stadium, Philly? Okay. All the kids came out, and all the fans booed the kids who didn't find an egg. And you're just like... (laughs) It's City Brotherly Love! Okay, so first of all, I, 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 I like the fact that you are in no way attempting to defend the Astros. You are merely (laughs) making a case that, like, which is the lesser of two evils. Exactly. exactly. I actually dislike the other team even more, which I actually I've got total respect for, um, because we're obviously um, and actually with if because you watch a baseball game with like Alexander. I know you and I both watched Tobin play Adam, but you and I have not. And my my fifteen year old is uh, very opinionated. This apple did not fall far from the tree, and apparently, all of the the venom that I've got reserved for I think like nerdier stuff, he definitely pours into sports and is he's got some opinions about the Astros. This is right versus wrong for him. So, I mean, you, you got I mean the cheating scandal. I mean, I could go on and on, and, and then uh, yeah, I mean. I, also, yeah, you got like a rod announcing. Yeah. Here, here's the thing: is is that the, the the thing I find interesting is is that I would say the overwhelming majority of the people who are down in the Astros, and I'm not defending them, um, but it's interesting <laughs> that this is uniquely bad. And then you ask them, like, "Oh, you've heard, you know, the shot heard around the world, right?" And they're like, "Yeah, of course." Like it's a seminal moment in baseball history, and you're like, 
Yeah, you know, they had a radio feed for the call, right? So he knew exactly what pitch was coming. It's essentially exactly the same setup, just with, you know, 40s technology instead. <laughs> and people were like, wait, what? This has happened? And you're like, yeah, it, it, literally the history of the sport is a history of cheating. They come up with new and different ways to do it. The technology changes, but the cheating literally never does. So... It, it, I don't know. It's it's fun. It is that <laughs> certainly there is truth to that, but I think it's also the the, the when you've got it's when, it's when you've got kind of one team that's kind of violating the mores mores of the sport that you um I I, I feel that the um and what actually resulted in rule changes, right? I mean that they actually for those that don't know, the Astros were in uh, in twenty seventeen. They were stealing signs so the batter could determine what pitch is coming. So if you're again, if you're not a baseball fan, the, the when you are wa- what you are watching when you're watching a batter at the plate, it, they are are psychologically, physiologically blind for the last two thirds that that ball is traveling to the plate. And the difference between a fastball and a changeup is really just a difference of, of velocity. And if you know which one is coming, you can you know to lay off the changeup. Uh, this, this is too much inside baseball, for folks. I'm sure. But what the the, the Astros would had a uh, they they were intercepting the signs from the catcher. They were intercepting the communications from the catcher to the pitcher by having a camera in the outfield, and then they were then conveying that electronically, and they were banging on a drum to indicate which pitch was coming. And as Stephen is pointing out. This is not the first time that signs have been stolen. This is, and this has happened like over and over again in baseball history, right, Stephen? Over and over and over. So, yeah. But was... but no more. But no more because they are now going. They are now communicating via a headset to the pitcher. Yeah, and the vendor for that headset yeah, has claimed that it's it's totally unhackable. So I know. I, 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 well, and so actually something added that I have not told you yet. Uh, and actually Steve is on this. My, my, my oldest is pitching in college and he is going to, he, he's get there. He will pitch with the headset this year. Oh, wow. Like the mm. pitch tronic or whatever it is. Yeah. The pay, whatever it is, the pitch tronic 2000, like they are going to, so I'll, I'll, I'll be able to give you a, a firsthand report of the, of the technical difficulties of this thing. I, I mean, sure it's like the, like what I want to know is what firmware is running on this stuff. And <laughs> I, I'm sure it's all right. Well, that's a good, uh, so the one thing I want to say is if you, because Adam, you, I know you did not see Bryce Harper's at bat yesterday. I have since watched it and it was spectacular. Oh man, that was that guy is so goddamn good. Steven, what do you feel about Bryce Harper? He's just really, really, really good. He is yeah. really, really good. He, yeah, the, he. The difficulty is, is that you know when you come into the league without much hype, it's just you know it. it I. I'm trying to remember who said this the other day, but it's right, which was basically that he's going to be looked at as could have been more. And it's like, yeah, because, you know, they made him out as like the second coming coming out of high school. Like right. nobody, nobody can love up to that. Like the, the dude's just really good. He's an excellent player. He's really good. And so if you get a chance, and the, I promise this is the last on baseball, we'll get on the open source here in a second. But, but if anyone gets a chance to watch that full at bat yesterday, the scenario is there's a runner on that the Phillies are down by a run and he's got a pitcher on the mound, Suarez, who I love. Great story. Um, took a long time to get into the league. Um, really a terrific pitcher. 
and he gets Harper gets way behind in the count. He gets behind in the count one to two, which was a one ball, two strikes. And the and I'm like with my again I'm watching it with my my kids and my son. The pitcher were both like, give him the off speed. And Stephen Irvin saw that pitch, but he gave him a perfect off speed uh, slider. I think. But the exact pitch you'd want, he'd been pitching at 96, 97. This is coming at 92, dropping out of the zone. And it is a pitch that I don't think I've ever seen anyone. I mean, he laid off that pitch, which was extraordinary. The ability to lay off that pitch is like, and then hitting the home run on the next pitch. But he's very good. He's legit. He's legit. He is. He, he's him, as, as, as the Youngs say. He's definitely him. Um, all right. So that, we got the baseball out of the system. <laughs> That was fun. Um, the uh, so Stephen, I in part we wanted to not not just have you on here to talk postseason baseball um, and our, our shared enemies, um, but the uh, uh, this piece that you wrote, uh, I guess like last week, right? When, when did it get picked? It got picked up by Hacker News. I want to say like a week ago. On yeah, uh, right. uh, and uh, you called it the the the, the dead end, um, and. This is um, all about this kind of trend that we have seen over the last three years, right? Because it was really in 2018 that this started, I think. Is that right? Something like that. It's, but this, it kind of the end of 2018 is when, that's certainly when I was like, when I think when Confluent was one of the first ones. Who was, was the first vendor to do this? Like a, a couple uh, of them did it. I should know that. I don't. Um... You know, so basically, you know, you, you had a couple of them that, uh, you know, e- each one, and this is this sort of remains true today. Each one that does it makes it easier for the next one to go. Yes. Um, and the difficulty is, we were talking to so many of the companies, um, you know, get, either getting briefed or in some cases providing you know sort of input on you know some of these decisions, you know, behind the scenes. So I'm trying to. That's a good question. I should know that. I should go look that up. Um, but I think you, you're I right that, that each one of these made it easier. So I think, and I think it was, I want to say Mongo was early. I mean, there were a couple of them mm-hmm. and then yeah. they, it, they just kind of seemed to accelerate. And next thing you know, it's Confluent and then it's Cockroach. And then, I mean, it's just a bunch of these folks and they are, you know, you phrased it in your piece and Adam, I don't know if this resonated with you as well, but I really liked Steven's phraseology is like have, trying to have it both ways. And trying to have the kind of organic growth of open source with the with the honestly the the margins and the lock in of proprietary software. Stephen, I assume that, that that's a that's a fair rephrasing. Yeah, yep, that's pretty much exactly what's happening. You know, basically, it's just you know they they uh, uh, ultimately folks want to have their cake and eat it too, and. This seems to be, uh, you know, the new direction, you know, of the, uh, you know, at least the, you know, from the commercial side of things, um, you know, this is what people are, are doing. And, you know, as we've discussed, each company that sort of follows this path makes it easier for the next one to do so. Um, so uh, very foolishly and far too optimistically, I don't know what year it was, um, probably 16 or 17, I had thought like, oh, hey, this is you know, going to be a short lived phenomenon. And, um, yeah, that was, that, that's not, that's not up there on my list of, of predictions that I've, <laughs> so, I thought it was, I was with you though. I thought it was a short lived, that was going to be a short lived phenomenon. I actually didn't think other companies, I'm like, all right, like, you know, Mongo has done this, but another, but other companies won't. And it just like, they kind of fell like dominoes. 
Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that you, and I can't remember if you said it in the piece or if you said it in that Hacker News moment, like, but certainly something that, I, and I know you, you did see it in the piece as well, that part of the reason they felt like dominoes is because investors were actually pushing for this. Yeah, so I'm I'm sort of limited in terms of what I can say here because you know a lot of the a lot of the conversations we have are either private or people tell me things off the record. But what I can say is that uh, in um, I don't know the year or two. I, I, again, I have to sort of have the time frame in front of me, but you know, basically immediately prior to several of these companies' decisions, um, a particular investor uh, organized a uh, essentially a uh, I don't know, a meeting, call it what you will, you know, sort of of uh, large scale open source commercial ventures uh, with the express intent of encouraging them to go down this path. Uh, some of these were portfolio companies, this particular investor, several were not, um, and sort of had no relationship. And, uh, you know, a couple of those companies ended up going down that path. Um, they uh, sort of, you know, interestingly, and, in, in, you know, I don't know, arguably, problematically for them they all went off their own path for the most part right so um you know if you look at one of the problems with this approach is that they've all done something different right it's not as if we've come up with a okay here's the flavor it's the same standardized flavor and you prove it once then you're good to go everybody's got sort of a little bit of a different variant you know this is what the open source community fought for years is license proliferation oh god and um, so they all went off and did their own thing. Uh, and once this started happening, you know, there were a bunch of other you know, sort of conversations amongst board members. Um, uh, other investors you know, began to sort of agitate for this as an approach. So um, I'm trying to remember if it's a public source or not. So I probably shouldn't say. But anyhow, there was a, a sort of one of the one of the folks, one of the founders of an open source company and said, you know, hey, look, a, a um, you know, one of our investors came to us and said, you know, hey, we want you to do, you know, sort of X, Y, Z. And he was like, no, you know, we're, we're not doing that. Um, you know, because, you know, it, in my words, not his, you know, effectively, this is a rug pull, pull, you know, for all of the people who contributed you know, to our project under the terms of the original license, right? So, um, yeah, it is, you know, sort of, you know, you, you see sort of the companies when they come out with this um, will typically sort of argue it in various terms, right? Uh, you know, we need to do this because people are free living off the project. Um, you see some defenders of these companies saying, well, they can't make any money, which is interesting because a lot of these companies have gone public and are worth, you know, multiple right. millions of dollars. Yeah. But set, set that aside. Uh, and, you know, what you end up seeing sort of, you know, from, from different quarters is, is these different arguments in sort of in, in favor of uh, this, this sort of new style of license. Um, but the worst to me are the ones that uh, are the investors who are, uh, they basically, you know, hold themselves up as we're saving open source. Oh, and God. Those are the ones. <laughs> oh, that that's rich. Rich. That is rich. Well, and the, the difficulty to me is, is that, look, if you are, uh, you know, if you're a company and you are pursuing a commercial um, endeavor behind a particular project, and more, more particularly, if you are responsible for all of the engineering, you know, at the end of the day, you get to pick your license. Like, I don't think this is helpful. I don't think it's a good thing for the industry as a whole. But, you know, look, this is, this is you know, uh, this is your effort. And you get to pick, you know, sort of what the terms of the license are, right? So that's, you know, that can be frustrating to me at times, but so be it. Um, 
you know, it's funny. I, I talk to people and they're like, aren't some, aren't a lot of these companies who've done this your clients? And I'm like, most of them at this point. You know, I <laughs> and, you know, people are like, well, how does that work? I'm like, I don't only consult on things I like, right? Not everybody does what I tell them. Um, that's just not how, how our business works. Uh, but, you know, to me, the, the sort of, the, like I said, the thing that really gets me are the, you know, this investor class who has no sort of notion of the potential for collateral damage here, uh, yeah. doesn't really care, wants to make, uh, you know, their investments, uh, you know, sort of outperform, which, okay, you know, look, they're, they're sort of acting on behalf of their shareholders, but it's an extremely myopic view, which is focused on the near term, can I make these particular investments worth more? And if a bunch of damage is done long term in the process, I don't care. Right. So, so I will recoup my investment. Stephen, there was a, there's a ton there. And one of the things that I, I heard you say and maybe missed in the article or, or, or in the blog post was mm-hmm. the, this sort of smoke filled room with like uh, the CTOs of a bunch of these open source projects being like collaborating effectively. I mean, I, I know that I've got the visuals probably wrong, but that doesn't sound that far off. I don't think it's that far off. Um, you know, uh, I, you know, at least. It depends on who you talk to. It depends on, um, you know, sort of which company you're talking to, right? And at what point, you know, sort of they made some of these decisions. But, yeah, you know, there was a concerted effort um, sort of on the part of investors to to have some of these conversations. You know, we had yeah. some of the some of the folks come and tell us about that. Like, hey, they're trying to get us to do X, Y, Z. I don't think it's the right thing to do, blah, blah, blah. Um, but, it, yeah, it's just, um, you know, it is – I mean, in, in some respects, it's no different than the, you know, sort of the hustle porn culture you see the investor class pushing, right? Because at the end of the day, it burns people out, destroys, you know, families and lives and all that, but that's not their affair, right? They don't care. Uh, collateral damage is not their their um, their concern, right? Their concern is, you know, I want, you know, sort of a, a particular return on my investment. And, you know, if, uh, you know, some stuff has to get, you know, ground up in the process, then, you know, so be it, right? So... Yeah, and yeah, as you as you were talking about the proliferation of these licenses, I almost thought like that could be almost designed uh, to kind of confuse the public. If they like landed on one license, then it's easy enough to you know vet and have opinions about and share them and, and iterate. Uh, and I well, felt like it was almost too conspiratorial to think, "Hey, get your own license," but maybe it's not. I think honestly, I think they would have preferred that. I know you know at least in one case there was a desire to you know, basically, you know, have people follow, um, you know, a particular chain. And, and this has been tried, right? You know, so you've seen the, um, uh, the commons clause, which oh, oh. now, <laughs> that's mostly now DOA, I believe. I don't, I don't think any of the, these sort of products or projects that used it uh, still do. But that was an example of, <clears throat> hey, we want to push this particular approach and sort of standardize it um, in, in this way. And for those who are unfamiliar with that, basically the commons clause was a writer that attached to a given open source license that essentially made it um, a proprietary software, right? It's basically, if you're, if you, you know, this is commons clause, so the source itself is available, but it overrides and supersedes the terms of the open source license. So one, you know, I had a problem with the terms, um, oh. sure, but the, the bigger issue is, is that it then attempts to piggyback on and masquerade as open source software, where once you put commons clause at the end of whatever the open source license is, the open source license part of it is not relevant any longer, right? Because it's 
essentially converted, you know, by the terms of the Commons Clause. So, yeah, so a couple of things. On the, we're not going to get off the Commons Clause this quickly. I because I think that the the, the name is gross. Yeah. I feel like the you see abuse of Commons community, mm-hmm. all these things that that imply sharing to imply that it's something other than what it is. I also feel like Heather Meeker. What the hell? I I, I mean I I, I I was very surprised by that. Um, and Heather Meeker, for those of you who are unaware, is is a a lawyer of some prominence who's done you know, quite a bit of work in the open source space and was involved on the on the Commons Clause. And I just I, I was I won't say more than that. I was I was surprised. I, surprised and then honestly like anyone who talks about the commons clause is going to talk about heather meeker in the first sentence because they i, I mean they meeker washed the commons clause i feel because they used heather's good name i feel um and you know i don't know how she feels about it but i thought that the whole thing is i think really really gross it's actually a relief to hear that you think that 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 particular variant is is doa um but it, the, the part of the problem here is that they, and I don't know, Stephen, if you've got the, this, the same issue, that they are kind of tacking into waters where there, I mean, we already, there is not a whole lot of precedence on, case precedence on software to begin with. And there's no precedence on any of this stuff. And there's unlikely to ever be. So, it, I, I mean, I think, I'm not a legal opinion, obviously. For my legal opinions, I turn to my lawyer, Adam Leventhal. So <laughs> I, I, I will, he's also my, my accountant and hardware engineer. So any, uh, I'll direct any questions, follow-up questions to him. But I, I think that there is unlikely, there, oh, oh, this is unlikely to result in litigation. And it's unfortunate because there's a bunch of stuff in there. It's like, wait a minute, is this just like, what is this? Because one of the issues I've got with this, and Stephen, I don't know if you have the same kind of concerns but if you actually look at these repositories they contain language that looks like a eula and then use the license agreement mm-hmm. and it's like wait a minute so in any any user license agreements famously just like it implies it you actually don't actually own the software you are you actually have a license to use the single copy of software that exists in the the vaults of Microsoft. This is kind of like the theory at the time, and it's like, what does a EULA mean when I can build the software myself? I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's well, like it, you know, and, and the difficulty to you know to me in, in some of these is the. Um, you know, so as you know, right, there is a lack of case law behind a lot of the open source licensing they rely on today, right? So that is, you know, sort of a, uh, you know, that's a that's just a feature of the landscape at this point. But in other words, if you if you go look at some of these things, you know, some of these licenses, you're like, wait, what? Right? <laughs> right. So the, I just looked it up. So the Commons Clause um, had a had a phrase in it that basically prohibited you from selling software if the value of the software derived entirely or substantially from the functionality of the software that you're combining with. And I'm like, okay, who defines substantially, right? Like, you know, the, the lack of legal precision in, yeah. some of these, in some of these new licenses is just honest. Like, forget for what you think about open source or principles and all that. Just the la- the general lack of legal precision in some of these is just horrifying. Okay, so not to become too conspiratorial, but do you think that that lack of legal precision 
is legally deliberate in that it is one lawyer broadcasting to another like, hey, by the way, like if you want, roll the dice. But hey, there's a lot of ambiguity here and who knows what it means. And actually your safest route is to just license the software from us. I mean, are they, is it, am I being too conspiratorial to think that? No, I, I think that's, you know, that is absolutely part of the intent, right? Because in other words, you know, look, if you are a large business, there is zero chance you're ever going to, to you know, leverage one of these licenses, right? Because you're not going to sit there and say, okay, nobody in this contract has to find substantial. So I have to, you know, to protect my organization, I have to take a maximalist view of that, a conservative view of that, and assume it, you know, pertains to everything, right? Yeah. So that's point one. Point two is, is that, you know, I think, you know, certainly what has happened in many of the cases here is that it's really difficult to do what they want to do, right? Yeah. Um, in the sense that they're trying to thread this needle, which, um, you know, I've Definitely don't want to go down the ethical license here, you know, um, this sort of rat hole here. But that's a whole other thing where I'm like, you know, people want to use licenses to solve these problems. And at least in, in my view, in a lot of cases, the license is not the appropriate tool. Right. And, you know, when you think about you know, sort of this new class of license, to me, it's not a license problem. It's a business model problem. Yes. Uh, that they are trying to address via license. Well, it turns out that's very difficult to do. And therefore the licenses reflect that because there's no clean way to implement the language to say, oh, this is great and you get what you need and I get what I need and so on. And it's just, yeah, it's, um, it's, so, it's something of a mess. So I'm gonna actually combine two sources of frustration that I have with VC as an investment class into one superstorm of VC rate, if, 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 if I may. So I think the, the, so there are, I think there are two problems here. One is that, that VCs are building the flip fundamentally. Their, their time horizon is so, so tight, 10 years, maybe 12 in some cases, you know, maybe as long as 14, but a 10 year time horizon from first capital in to cash out is actually not how our most valuable company, that's not the time horizon over which our most valuable companies have been built. It takes longer than that to build. And so they're building fundamentally to flip. Um, and I, and the, so they're looking for fast growth and the open source software gives and in particular downloads gives you this illusion of product market fit because it's this way of getting this kind of zero what feels like zero cost growth and then they want to monetize that obviously uh to create enterprise value for the company but then the flip side is they also don't they only want to invest in software so in other words they they don't want to because like oxide has got a very clear business model right we sell an entire system and for us we can very safely make all of our software is open source it does not threaten our business model we know exactly what we're selling and it can be right. under mpl it's like there's no funny business no right there's gonna be no weird relicensing from us because and ditto for all those companies that like google and amazon and meta for that matter know exactly what they sell Right. And and the they are able to open source this stuff in and make true community contributions because they they're not undermining their own. But these VC firms don't want to fund things that gives them the kind of frustration. Number two, they only want to fund software. And if you and, and, and refuse to have a, a larger, more complicated system that you're actually selling to the user. 
whoever that user may be. And as it like, kind of gets them into this trap where they want it both ways. I mean, I think you, you nailed it, Stephen, your piece. It's like they, they really, truly really want it both ways. Well, well there's yeah. one more piece to it too, which is nefarious, which is not only do they want uh, to monetize it in this variety of ways, they want to prevent other folks from monetizing it. And that's yeah. where the, yeah. the sort of surprise it comes, you know, when they, or when they start wanting it both ways, when they see, uh, you know, GitHub stars up and to the right, revenue at zero, and meanwhile, other folks have managed to turn this open source software into dollars using, you know, in many cases, their, their hardware investments. Right, exactly. That, their computers. That's when it starts getting frustrating. When they say, why are these jerks making money off of my investment? Right. right. Which is called open source software. <laughs> exactly. Right. right. Yeah. And by the way, it's like those, those companies, too, you could not build... And I mean, Stephen, I'm sure this thought has occurred to you as well. You could not build Amazon, Google, Meta without open source software. Open source software was actually necessary to be able to build those companies. Yes. Yeah. But, what, but what about, you know, MongoDB, Confluent? I, I, think the, I think the case is even oh. more acute there. Whereas, yeah. agreed, you can't build Amazon, you can't build Facebook, you can't build Google uh, without open source software. And yet uh, they have a... You know, I think that in you know their open source contributions are not maybe as impressive or as ubiquitous as we as we would like. But the case for you know Mongo or Confluent, they're already standing on the shoulders of giants, but they kind of want to cut people off from the top. They don't they don't want anyone standing on their shoulders. Well, and no. Confluent, yeah. Sorry, Stephen. Good. <laughs> Before no. I get myself in trouble. <laughs> no, I mean all I was going to say was that you know basically the, you know the pattern here is pretty straightforward, right? Is that you know you have projects that are released under an open source license, typically permissive. Then you know there's exceptions. You know Mongo carried the AGPL up until the time was relicensed, but typically these days they're permissive licenses. And for the folks in the audience that don't know a lot about licenses, permissive basically imposes minimal restrictions, right? You typically have to reproduce. Um, you know, the license itself, you have to, you know, sort of, a, you know, um, in some cases, you know, convey patents, you know, with Apache and, you know, basically attribution, right? There's just not a lot you have to do. You could actually take, you know, the open source software, wrap it up, you know, as a proprietary asset and sell that, right? And that's what the licenses permit you to do. So a lot of these open source projects, you know, sort of are, are on the market and um, some of them, you know, for reasons that, you know, may have something to do with the technology, may have, you know, uh, something to do with just the ancillary factors, become uh, sort of disproportionately popular. And this attracts a certain center of gravity. Uh, that gravity can fuel the rise of the company. And then uh, in many respects, the company itself and or its board and or its investors say, well, wait a minute, um, I'm making money off that. And that's cool. And I've been able to go public. That's also cool. But Amazon and Google and, and Microsoft, they can also do that. And I don't want that. So... How do we how do we cut that off right and you know that's ultimately the pattern it's not super complicated at this point uh and you know the difficulty is is that you know what you you know what you end up with is a world where the pattern now is to basically you know sort of bait with this open source license attract the community once the community is is quote unquote too big to fail you switch the license and it's too embedded it's too you serve everywhere so, you know, we basically just have to deal with it and we're accumulating more and more of these things over time, which then normalizes the behavior moving forward. And well, then you end up with the situation we're in today.
Um, well, and he, so it, it, it normalizes the behavior moving forward, which is bad. Um, it also, I think, puts an impediment in front of more legitimate open source projects that don't intend to relicense. It erodes trust. So those open source projects that have copyright assignment, which, by the way, yeah. I think at, th at this point, I don't think open source projects should have copyright assignment. I think that that is the contributor's check um, is to have the, the copyright be held by all contributors, which is what we do on all of our projects. Um, and we use, we're big fans of the MPL too, um, because it, it allows you, it gets you out from the, the kind of the, the DSOs and there's a bunch of things that it gets you out of. Um, and it allows all contributors to effectively hold copyright very easily. And then we assures that you basically can't relicense, um, which I think is very important for contributors to know. Another thing that actually, I got to say, really rubs me the wrong way about Adam, what you're describing, which to me is like these projects pulling the ladder up behind them. If you take and I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm going to name the names. If you look at Confluent, Confluent is based on Kafka. Kafka was developed at LinkedIn. It, 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 LinkedIn is the one who, I mean, it's like, and I guess it's just, so it's like the irony of having ire that these companies are using, say, Kafka. It's like, wait a minute, what? Like, sorry, like LinkedIn did not have to open source Kafka when they developed it. They did that for a bunch of good reasons, including their desire to contribute back some of the social capital that they had themselves had consumed. And then to like, to turn that into a company, I mean, it's like, it's super dirty to me, uh, at least to do it in a way that is, that is not cognizant of the fact that the whole company relies on that kind of corporate benevolence. I just, I don't know. I mean, it's one of these things where it's like, am I the only one that sees the hypocrisy here? Yeah. It just, it's, uh, it, it, it's just really difficult to, in my case, experience over and over, you know, it's like Groundhog Day or Edge of Tomorrow or whatever, where it's just, it's the same scenario. And then every time one of the companies does this, people are like, oh, okay. So, you know, wh what are you going to say? And I'm like, I'm going to say the same thing I said last time. <laughs> There's nothing new here, right? It's the same thing. It's the same sort of relicensing. And, you know, again, it comes down, there, there's, it's a nuanced thing because in the sense where as we discussed earlier if a company has singularly developed all the assets okay like I, I have less of a sort of issue with that um, I still think it's bad but I you know look they're within their rights but in other words you know you have a bunch of these projects which have taken copyright assignment yeah uh, you know uh, you know from a community of contributors and then switch the, the license on them and it's like oh man like you know and then surprise uh you know all sorts of you know sort of downstream uh, implications become evident right so in other words you saw uh aka you know was relicensed and it's like oh we didn't intend to sort of you know create this problem for the apache flink project and it's like yeah that's why we have open source licenses <laughs> right not these licenses because they work together and these ones do not so yeah it's just a it's a it's a tough, it's a, you know, honestly, I don't know what the fix is at this point, right? You know, because I've made the argument to, I don't know, probably every, every company at some point who's done this and basically said, look, this is a business model problem. Here's the deal, you know, particularly on the database side of the house. I'm like, look, you know, really what, what, you know, sort of the, the market wants is they want to sort of run this as a service. And it took all of them longer than it should have. They all, you know, sort of more or less got there. And, you know, sort of that is a scenario where 
if it is, if you are running that as a service um, and sort of giving the developer populations what they want in, in that sort of form, you know, the open source side of the house is, is a lot less, um, I don't know, it's sort of crucial to you. Like the software itself becomes, you know, not irrelevant certainly, but it's not really what you're defending. You're defending essentially a managed service business, which is a materially better business for most of these companies. Yes. And yes. So, okay, what are you defending, right? You know, because in other words, you look at, um, you know, for example, Mongo relicensed ostensibly to protect itself from the Amazons of the world, where, you know, uh, Mongo was such a center of gravity that Amazon said, look, we're going to sort of service this one way or another. And they went out and just did, you know, sort of API uh, compatibility in DocumentDB. And I had somebody, you know, try to make the argument, well, it's like, oh, well, you know, they relicensed and that's why this didn't happen. I'm like, you, look, the, the launch of DocumentDB was like four months after they relicensed. Amazon, even Amazon does not spin up a brand new service in four months. Yeah. Like they, you know, clearly did a clean room re-implementation on their end because they didn't want to deal with the AGPL, which was right. the license that, you know, right. was, was retired in that case. So it's like they relicensed, solved nothing really. Um, you know, it has, you know, I, you know, we talked to a large vendor Oh God, I think it was mm, first quarter, I think after that happened. Um, and I was like, yep, we're, you know, we're, we're, everything's on hold, you know, sort of with, you know, relicensing and so on. So it's like, you know, um, you know, most of these companies, as we've talked about, have hit a certain center, you know, uh, uh, you know, basically uh, gravitational size, right. Where they're not going anywhere. Right. You know, they're, they're going to keep going up. More people are going to use them uh, because, you know, once you hit a, you know, it's very much a too big to fail thing. But it is absolutely a scenario where it's just, um, yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a problem, you know, for the industry, you know, because I can't remember if I use it in the piece or not, but I've certainly used it in conversation where it's like, I had a um, English teacher at one point, uh, I think it was in high school, tell me, look, you know, you're going to have these philosophy professors in college and they're going to tell you that uh, Kant's categorical imperative is really hard to understand. And she's like, it is. But the only thing you need to know is basically it's like littering. If one person litters, it's not a big deal. If everybody litters, it becomes a big deal. And that ultimately is the issue here where, if, you know, you had a company here or there do it. Okay. You know, so be it. Not ideal, but, you know, survivable. But, you know, when it gets to the point that it is now where it's becoming, you know, essentially a de facto pattern, um, you know, from a commercialization standpoint, you know, a, that's a it's a problem long term for the industry, but B, I don't see any sort of market forces poised to to address this. Right? Well, so I guess one of the things that, that I'm curious about. Sorry, Adam, go ahead. I, then I'll, oh, I, I want to say, Stephen, the the title of the piece is, is dead end, and I got to say, like in some ways, I found that hopeful. Like hopeful that <laughs> no, that maybe we've reached that dead end. But now yeah. it's it's uh, well, yeah. it's almost it's not, more like a warning, not, right? It was it was not a hopeful title at all. No, no, no. But I guess I guess the hope of it being that uh, you know this is a dead end that like we as an industry can't proceed out of this quagmire. But now it's almost like a warning saying this is the dead end we're heading to, and I don't see a way out once once this becomes uh, the prevailing way that software is delivered. Yeah. So Ian, you've had your hand up, and then and then and then I, but you know, I want to get to you because I know you've had your hand up for a long time. 
Yeah, I was kind of curious about the timing of this post because um, a number of the, the companies we're referring to were covered under the 2019 post cockroach and the source available for future. So was it the ACA license change that prompted the post now, given that a lot of the companies that we're talking about, you know, had already made these changes before yeah. 2019? It's a great it's, question. It's, yeah. I mean, yes, you know, that, that was probably the precipitating trigger um, you know, but really, like I said, this is just sort of, uh, it's becoming a pattern. I think the thing that was significant and different about, um, about, uh, ACA specifically was that there are exceptions, but for the most part, um, the, the sort of blast radius here, as it, as it were, was contained to the database space, right. You know, or just sort of adjacent in you know, streaming and, and so on. We did, we hadn't seen, you know, really you know, sort of this effort, you know, go on in the, the sort of runtime category as it were. And, uh, you know, I, I, you know, my, my suspicion is that, you know, you know, Aka having done this, um, you know, I think you'll end up seeing other sort of runtime projects follow. <laughs> and, you know, at that point, you know, it's one thing that you could write it off. The database base has always been sort of a little different. Um, and, you know, if this begins to you know, sort of spread to adjacent um, uh, categories of, of software outwards from sort of the database world, then, yeah, it, uh, I, I mean, I, I think it's very, very likely it'll end up being a sort of endemic uh, pattern in something moving forward. Yeah. So, okay. So just to give you the other side of it and maybe the hopefulness of the dead end um, to, to Adam's point, I also feel though that, you know, we all watched uh, open source software devour proprietary software, proprietary software die at the hands of open source software when there was actually a huge asymmetry between them with a huge disparity between them from even from a quality perspective and the, but the economics of open source were so indisputable. And I kind of feel it's the same thing here where when I've got a kind of strangely licensed variant or something that's going to require me to get a license from them to go use the thing that I started using on GitHub versus something that doesn't have any of those covenants or impediments, I, I'm going to naturally use the thing that, that and I'm going to going to go contribute to those things as well. I mean, I think that the, when, when Steve, question, when Steve, the one question I have for you is whether we are still seeing kind of uh, downloads and GitHub stars up and to the right as a metric that VCs care about. Certainly, our VCs don't care about it, so it's not something, not a question that has come up for us. Um, but the because I think there was a time when when people were really viewing downloads as a proxy for product market fit. And I remember talking to one of the, and I, remember, I know we talked about this in the Docker episode, but I remember talking to one of the investors in Docker being like, hey, you know, out of curiosity, like, do you think it's possible that these things are so popular because developers need something to, to serve a particular purpose and they know that these things can't be monetized, that the popularity of them it's not product market fit. It is actually the, 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 that there can never be a true product market fit because you can't actually monetize it. And he was kind of laughing about it for a second. He's like, wait a minute, do you think that's true? And I'm like, well, I think it might be true. I mean, it, 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 I mean it's, it's definitely true for us. I mean, if you look at the stuff that we are using, it, like, we, will, we are not that we would necessarily be opposed to maybe some kind of support arrangements, but although we don't have any, any of those in place, but we are 
the, the, our stack is using all open source software. And yes, we use CockroachDB, but we're using the open source variant of Cockroach. Um, and we are, for every other component of the stack, we are using, we're using a true open source variant that allows us to give, to, to redistribute what we're doing. And I can't imagine that we're the only ones that are, although Cockroach seems to tell us we're the only ones a lot. So maybe. <laughs> all, I can, all I can tell you is, is that, uh, you know, I, I joke about this with our clients all the time, right? Where we had, uh, you know, they'll, they'll say, well, you know, sort of what about lock-in and, and everything else? And, you know, I'll, I'll, I basically tell them variants the same story. So, if, you know, you go out and talk to CIOs and uh, they'll, they'll all say something like, okay, yeah, you know, I, I got locked into Windows and I didn't like it. And then I got locked into VMware and I didn't like it. So I'm not going to get locked in again. Right. Like, okay. And they're like, okay, using cloud. They're like, yeah. And you're like, okay, so what are you using for cloud? And they're like, well, Dynamo, Kinesis, Redshift. Right. Um, you know, Aurora. And I'm like, okay, but these are all proprietary cloud services. And the gist of it, you know, the lesson, uh, as, it, as it were, is basically that, you know, companies will tell you they're not going to lock themselves in, um, you know, via proprietary software they can only get from one place. And if it is remotely more convenient, they will do it every day and twice on Sunday and not think <laughs> twice about it. Yeah, it's and like... um, it's just, you know, that's, that's the sort of way of the world. And that ultimately is what the investors um, and, you know, sort of various members of the board have basically sort of realized, right? Which is that, okay, um, you know, we could change the license and our large customers aren't really going to care. Uh, because, you know, we you know, sort of quote unquote, uh, you know, they buy their way out of the license, you know, by by setting up a commercial agreement. And, you know, we have the developer sort of support and popularity that we need now. So, you know, we're not going anywhere. Nothing's going to sort of come along and eat us as far as they as they think. Um, and, you know, that's kind of kind of where we sit right now. Right. Um, and it is. Yeah, it is not, um, to, to Adam's point, it is not a hopeful dead end, you know, from my standpoint, but uh, <laughs> you know, quite the opposite. So do you feel that this is going to to spread to other, I mean, because certainly you talk about going into run times. I mean, mm-hmm. one one thing that we that it has remained completely open for the moment is compiler tool chains. Um, and that is a big shift from 20, 30 years ago. Oh, yeah. do, you, do you see any, I mean, I cannot imagine any of that changing in part because there are not venture funded companies behind these things. Um, I would, but, I would be surprised. I mean, in other words, you know, particularly from an enterprise software standpoint, you know, really what these businesses want is they want to recreate historical businesses that they've known and the compiler, right. you know, to, to your point, the compiler business, um, you know, at you know, obviously it was proprietary. It was a it was a thing, um, you know, from a um, you know, from a commercial standpoint. But it's not the sort of it's not viewed market wise as the same opportunity, say, as middleware, right? right? So what a lot of the companies would like to do if they can is come along and basically say, all right, you know what, you know, we had an entire class of of, um, of businesses paying you know just obscene amounts of money. Uh, for their runtime platforms, like how do I make that? How do I replicate that? Right? How do I replicate this sort of existing known business? Because ultimately, I mean, you look at the database space. You know, that's the most obvious one, right? People looked at this. They got started with these developer-focused open-source projects, and then somebody thought, you know what? It'd be really cool if we could make the kind of money Oracle used to. So 
what, how do we do that? Right. And right. I don't, I don't think that they'll, I mean, put it this way. If this ends up continuing, it could impact at some point, every, every aspect of the market. But I think there's, I think there's other lower hanging fruit that they'll hit first. So what's next? <laughs> what is, what did you do? I've said that lower hanging fruit in mind. Yeah, I mean, in, this, in this dystopian future we're heading towards, right? Right. I, yeah, mean, it, I mean, honestly, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to speculate as to projects and, and sort of motives and so on, but in other words, you know, I think um, if, if ACA is any sort of example, I think we'll, we'll end up seeing some more plays in that direction. Right? Yeah. More, more saying, middleware. Infrastructure know, middleware. Hey, yep. Um, you know, this is like a, a sort of uh, an application platform. It's a middleware type play. Um, this is a market where people historically have been willing to throw tons of money at it. So what's a popular open source project here and how do we relicense it? Right. Um, so that's, now, that would be, that'd be my bad. Now, is it, would it be reasonable for folks to look to, um, for example, where a project where there is no copyright assignment, it really can't be practically relicensed. I mean, it is it is technically yeah. possible relicensed, but it's extremely difficult. You know, with any, let me put it this way, I, I guess my answer to that would be with any sufficiently large number of contributors, right? So in other right. words, like Linux, Linux is effectively impossible to relicense, right? Oh, like, Linux because, is extremely impossible to relicense. Yes. You know, Actually, you want to, sheer, uh, yeah. I was going to say the sheer number of contributors, and in many cases, you know, some of them are dead, right? So, yes. you know, then you're dealing with states and, and everything else. You know, if it's a situation where it's a smaller team, right, um, of contributors uh, and they can be financially compensated, um, it, it's at least theoretically possible uh, that, you know, you could see that sort of after the fact, you know, sort of post facto copyright assignment. But no, when you, when you have any sort of any any sort of sizable community, um, you know, sort of of individual contributors uh, who have not assigned copyright then no, it'll, it effectively it's impossible to relicense. Uh, yeah, and I think that, that that number, I mean, for Linux, it is it is long past impossible. I think that yeah. number is way, way lower. Uh, I mean, for, for Linux, you have like a lot of dead people that have contributed mm -hmm. to it. I mean, not to be too morbid yeah. about it, um, yeah. but the dead people are, are, dead people or dead companies are the biggest problem because those assets are now, that are, or copyright in this case, is in the hands of someone who doesn't necessarily understand what it is and isn't. So they're like, oh, wait a minute. Like, oh, is my house like built on an oil field? It's like, no, 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 it's, not an oil, it's definitely not an oil field. We just need your permission to relicense it. It's like, well, if it's not an oil field, like why, why do you yeah. need my permission? Like, I don't know, like what's in it for me? It's like, well, kind of nothing's in it for you, but you need to do it. And this actually gets to another question I've got for you, because one of the things you said is one of the, 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 the kind of the hinky things, the, things, the, the clauses of these licenses is this like time delay of like, Oh, after three years, it will yeah, be yeah. all of its license. Right. And you know, you had an interesting comment in there and it kind of dovetailed into something else we said about the Spolsky piece a while ago about like, you're like, look, these companies know that the value of that software is basically zero. And it's like, it's a paradox, right? Because the value is not necessarily like the value of bash is not zero. Right, it, 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 because, but no one is going to pay for Bash. It's like, it, and I, you know, there's this kind of like it. it, it it's you know, it's like clean water at this point. It's like we we just yeah. rely on it. It's a constraint of the infrastructure, and so it's extremely valuable as a constraint of the infrastructure. But it's not something we're going to pay for. And I feel like software has this more than other infrastructural aspects. I don't, and I don't. No, it's 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 hard because in other words. Um... You know, when and I made the argument a number of years ago, 
um, in a book called Software Paradox, you know, talking about sort of the declining commercial values of software, right? And, you know, one of the things that, that came out of the conversations both that preceded that book and, and followed its publication was the fact that, you know, when, when we talk about value as it pertains to software, to your point, it's extraordinarily difficult to assess, right? right? Because the, the sort of value of a software on an individual basis can be immense, and yet I'm not willing to pay for it. Right. I'm not willing to pay like any, I'm not willing to pay $2 a month. I'm not willing to pay for it. It's like, weird. I thought you built your entire company on it. No, no, like I have, right. but I'm definitely not spending $2 a month. Right. You know, and, and you see this all the time where it's like, you, you think about the, the havoc, um, you know, that was wreaked when, uh, uh, left pad, right. Oh yeah. You know, what's, what's taking it. It's like everything breaks and it's like, what is the value, the commercial value of left pad? Well, I mean, nobody's really, <laughs> going to pay for that but then on the flip side you take it out of the equation it's like a goddamn house of cars that comes down so you know this the sort of value is difficult to sort of you know really assess in sort of in any in any meaningful way but yeah i probably should have been more precise and said you know really what we're talking about is a commercial value right because basically the reason that um that style the you know bsl style license is willing to graduate these projects is because nobody cares about it Right. At that point. Right. I mean, yes, if you're using it, that has value to you, you know, sort of wonderful. But, the you know, nobody's going to start a commercial competitor and say, I'm going to compete with these guys. I'm just two years behind them. <laughs> That's right. right? Like, <laughs> remember, it's like retro databases. Hey, remember yeah. version six? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, Stephen, just to pause, I, I, I loved the software paradox. And I just wanted to make sure that that didn't skip by too quickly for folks. Um, it's a great read for, for folks who have not read it um, and available in major bookstores or whatever on Amazon. Yeah, and I'll take you. It's awesome. And the, the, the primary criticism, just like the primary criticism of the new keymakers, is that it's too short. So <laughs> They uh, are actually kind else. of short. They are a little bit short. Well, hey, if you're a slow reader, then it's, it, you, it's <laughs> right. just very dense. <laughs> right. They're good. They are great. Both books are, are, are terrific. And yeah. and I'll, and I would also say that in both cases, you I mean you were prescient. I mean you the, the, you kind of you saw this I think before before the the kind of industry writ large saw it, um, and saw the importance. And I think in particular the, the and you talk about this obviously in the new kingmakers, but the developers making effectively business decisions about what components to incorporate, and. I mean, I feel that part of the reason that th these open source components do get get this such momentum behind them is because you've got developers at the other end who are like, I need something to fill in this gap. And I'm, I definitely, I'm not going to run a purchase order process for it. So I need something that I can pull off GitHub and just go. And then you've got these companies that are then trying to turn that like, okay, so how do I become Oracle based on those number of downloads? It's like, yeah, you, sorry. <laughs> You, yeah. you don't. You don't. I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah, that's like yeah. that is actually a, a that, that Oracle represents a business model that really doesn't exist anymore. And I see you must also I certainly get frustrated when people look at Red Hat as a model here because it, Red Hat, it, it, not because of anything that Red Hat did, did incorrectly, but just because Red Hat was benefiting from trends much larger than Red Hat. And in particular, it was it was Intel x86 displacing all of the Unix risk vendors. May they rest in peace. Yeah. Um, the and you know you, you kind of had there were a bunch of things that were happening at once, of which the rise of open source operating systems was one component of that. And yes, Red Hat was able to build a lot of value based on that, but it's not necessarily replicable. I don't think. I mean, I, what's your take on that? 
No, I think that's right. Um, you know, Red Hat has you know, such a you know sort of unique set of of uh, I guess features. I guess you call it in its evolution that it is. You know, it, it, I mean, honestly, any of the standalone business, you know, software businesses, right? Or, um, you know, can you spin up a standalone software business in 2022? For sure. Is it going to be anything like it used to be? Not even close. But to your point, the interesting thing to me, and this is, you know, one of the sort of funny things, you know, we're talking to all these open source companies over time. I'm like, you know, you, you can replicate that business. It's just going and delivery in the cloud, right? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, you look at the, the sort of, you know, some of the numbers there, like, um, you know, Mongo, for example, it took them, you know, sort of a tick under 10 years, I believe, to hit 100 billion run rate for their, uh, you know, for the, the on-prem businesses or, or for the on-prem business. It took them, it was like two and a half um definitely less than three to hit that with the service business right the managed service business so it's like yes you, know, and it, you can replicate these margins but you're not just selling the software you're selling the combination of the software and the service and running it for somebody and, and, and the margins will be lower the margins are not going to be 90 percent. they're going to be 65 percent, right. and 65 percent is a good margin about around which you can build a sustainable company uh, but it's so hard when you're a company to make that transition from 90 plus percent margins to you know a blended down uh with you know pulling it down with that 60 percent margin that's really hard for the street to swallow i think i i think it is kind of tragic that we not that we should be embracing low margin businesses but the fact that we that it's kind of 90 percent or bust from a margin perspective because it's actually not the way the biggest most successful businesses have been built uh they've not and i you know this is i i and i've Mentioned, oh, actually, Stephen, a pop quiz from Andreessen's 2011 Software's Eating the World piece. Yeah. Do you remember, can you name the software companies that Andreessen identifies as the paragon of the coming age of eating the world? Oh, God. Br Brian's bad. favorite party trick. To be it honest. is my favorite party trick. Don't take it away from uh, me. Pixar, <laughs> God, no, I don't. I don't remember them. Groupon, Foursquare, Zynga, <laughs> and I feel like I've forgotten one of it. But it's like, oh, it's like, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, these these companies are basically they were sugar highs. They they were yeah. they, they were high margin, flash in the pan, and they were unloaded by their investors. Made a lot of money for their investors. Did not necessarily make a lot of money for the main street investor, and are not necessarily part. I mean, they're not. They certainly have not reached ubiquity. Certainly no one is, you know, thanking Foursquare and Zynga for, you know, for delivering them tremendous value today. And, oh, that's awesome. And it's like we – I really feel that it, in addition to, I think, decrying this behavior as we rightfully are, like we we need – software, yes, it's eating the world, but it, it's eating the world in more complicated vessels. Like your services example from Mongo. It's like – Running services is that's something that people will pay for because you actually it's actually like work. It's it, it's it's not just like software margins. Not to get too much on a rant here, but <laughs> I guess it's a little I guess, late. I think that. it's too late for that. Yeah. I, think it, I think it's way too late for that. Um, but so, and then what has been the the reception to the piece? So the piece kind of prompted. I think it sounds like Stephen, like the the Aka thing, definitely was maybe what sort of what pushed it over the edge. Um, what it, what's been the reaction to it? Have you have you had any customers or any of your clients been like, oh, this is what you keep saying to us, right? No, I mean, you know, I I think that it's it's honestly it's a little bit um, 
it's a little bit like an earnings call, right? In the sense that it's kind of baked in at this point. Like my my opinion on these subjects is not right. It surprises no one, right? Everyone has heard it from me before. To the point where I know that feeling. Uh, yeah, exactly. Adam Jacob um, was joking at one point. Uh, you know, he had this thread on on one of the I don't even remember which relations it was, and he was like, and you know, shit like this is why um, you know uh, So Greedy like runs and hides like every time this comes up. You know, because it's like I said, it's basically like Groundhog Day. It's like here we go, turn it all over again. But yeah, people have heard it from me before. You know, I think the thing, you know, when um, you know it made uh, uh, you know Hacker News, it's like I don't, for the most part, you know, when our stuff you know hits over there, like for for programming <laughs> rankings, like I'll pop in and just sort of answer questions and things like that. Or if it makes Reddit, um, you know, when people have genuine questions about it, um, that's fine. And it's always fun when you get somebody who who's like, I don't think the author meant this, and I'm like, I am the author. Uh, that's, always, that's always fun. But, um, you know, I don't typically wade into those discussions all that much because it's just, you know, it's like any other sort of form on the Internet. It's not super productive. Um, oh. But huh. you know, one of the things with, you know, I'm, I'm a little more sensitive on these issues, largely because I just don't think, you know, we, ha- we have an entire generation of developers, you know, not for, you know, sort of anything that they have done wrong on their part, but they grew up in a world where open source was just the default, right? It was just, Hey, we take it for granted. It's here. Of course, you know, this is going to be open source and so on. And they lack the history of, of, you know, some, some, uh, some of us who've been around and basically had to fight for this, this, you know, to get it to where it is today. So, you know, I will, when issues around the relicensing and so on pop up, I will occasionally pop in just to try to correct, you know, what I feel are, um, misimpressions of what's actually going on yeah, or how this works, right? When somebody's like, hey, it's not actually, you know, the, I'm looking at the page right now, it's like investors aren't the primary motivating factor here. I'm like, eh, okay. they kind of are, actually. Uh, I, I can tell you, not in every case for sure, but I've, you know, I've been party to a lot of discussions that I can tell you the investors um, either directly uh, or indirectly via certain board members have been, Tremendously influential. Right? Oh, it, so it's like, and they've been you, on the record have, about it. They've been on the. Yeah. I mean, you, you you go look at, at at what Mike Volpe said about Elastic in 2017, 2018. I mean, it's like they've been on the record about index vendors. Yeah. They, they, they've definitely been. They're, they're not hiding. They're they're hiding in plain no. sight. Yeah. So, yeah. So the reactions have been, you know, I, I think from some you know clients and so on, you know, for the most part, everybody's just like, yeah, okay, you know, there he is. You know, it's like old man yelling at the clouds, <laughs> yelling at the. Them, okay. You know, sort of open source licensing, but the reactions from a developer standpoint have been a little more, a little more frustrating. So I think, but here's why I think that what it's important anyway, because one of the things that I definitely wanted, actually, even in this very venue, um, you know, we had this terrific uh, open house a week ago, and um, I had actually a number of people who were at Oxide saying, "Hey, you know, I just wanted to thank you for the Twitter space." Because I'm early in my career and I'm not always hanging out with engineers that are, you know, 20, 25 years in and, you know, 30 years in, 35 years in, whatever. And it's great to hear that perspective. And I do think that, like, that is part of the value that you're, I mean, to me, like, Stephen, you're not actually speaking to the companies that have already made this decision. You're not actually speaking to the venture capitalists that have already made this decision. You're actually speaking, you're you're speaking to the chorus, first of all, you're speaking to us, obviously. You know, we're, uh, we're obviously great grateful that you're, that you're putting putting words to it but you're really speaking to that rising generation that is looking at this being like that seems like 
that seems wrong to me. And it's like, if you're, you know, 23 and you know, you're 25 and you're getting into the industry and contributing to an open source project and you know, your company starts to talk about relicensing and that feels like it's a violation of a social contract. You're right. It is a violation of the social contract. And yeah. let us, the olds, tell you that your gut is telling you the right thing, that your parents did a good job raising you and you do it. Yes, there's a social contract here. And you like that is it is not just you. And so I think, Stephen, this is one of the, the very valuable services that I think that you and, and we collectively can offer is to to speak to those folks who are not necessarily in the arena right now, but are very much watching. Yeah, you know, that's, you know, put it this way. I mean, to your point, you know, there are a lot of people who have made up their minds in you know, sort of one way or another, right? And uh, there are a lot of people who are just, uh, you know, sort of committed, um, you know, to, I don't know, sort of apathy sort of is a is an overstatement, but, but just, you know, it, it's beneath their sort of regard, right? At this point, they have other things they need to worry about. But, you know, the hope is, is that, you know, if you can talk to, you know, folks that are just like, oh, tell me more. Right. You know, because the difficulty is, is that, I mean, put it this way, you take um, and this is absolutely a can of worms. I do not want to open up. Um, <laughs> but in other words, when it comes to things like um, AI, right. And yeah. open source licensing and so on. Totally. That's an area where I don't understand the implications of that properly. And I basically, for the most part, you know, outside of some, some narrow areas where I have some expertise and I, you know, I've, you know, had conversations in various spaces that's the kind of conversation where I just sit aside and listen, right. And let people who are experts on this subject, you know, just sort of guide my thoughts and impressions. Right. And, you know, you just hope that, you know, in areas where these licenses are, um, you know, ultimately going to be an issue that people will be at least open-minded enough to, you know, sort of listen and say, yeah, you know, on an individual basis, this may not cause you a problem, but that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is the proliferation of these things one after another. What does that look like? Right. Because, you know, all of these things have, um, you know, sort of unintended consequences. You know, I mentioned the, the, the flank thing earlier. I'm quite certain that was not the intent, but that's what these things do. They introduce by their very nature collateral damage because they are intended to prevent certain use cases. And when you introduce that into ecosystems that have had nothing like that before, have instead been committed to open source licenses, which permit any use case, then, you know, all kinds of stuff is going to happen and you're probably not going to like some of it. So, yeah, yeah you just you just hope people are, are just willing to keep an open mind and, and listen to folks who uh, have have seen some things when it comes to licensing. Uh, amen. And, you know, fortunately, I got, I got a lot of confidence in the rising generation. Very, I think that they're uh, uh, very community minded in, in kind of a true and deep sense. So I, I've, I'm optimistic that um, we will be that, that this is, I'm still optimistic, I should say, that this is a dead end question mark. Adam, I'm not trying to recast your title to make it optimistic. <laughs> no, I, th- I think the, the optimism is, you know, it's a dead end, kids. Stay away. You know, the, right. the, the, like don't 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 try BSL. It'll it'll do you wrong. <laughs> it'll do you exactly. It'll do you wrong. Well, Stephen, really, really appreciate you joining us. It's been great as always. Thank you again for 
Monktoberfest is obviously terrific. Thank you, everyone, for indulging us as we talked baseball a bit. Um, I, hey, look, on the bright side, it wasn't cricket. I'm happy to go deep on cricket. If you like. <laughs> I, I, just, I, I just want everyone to know myself straight here. So, um, But uh, a lot of fun. Um, and uh, like I said, thanks again, Stephen. Thank you so much, also, for joining us on the predictions episode. It was so much fun. Um, and we'll have to do a predictions episode in 2023. So hopefully we'll see you then, if, if not soon. So the good plan. Always a pleasure. All right. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Thanks.